we live in the midst of change. And we ourselves are changing. I recently passed another age mile marker. And on the same day, I saw a friend of mine with whom I went to college. And as I looked at him, I thought, my, he is looking older. Not only are we changing, but the times that we live in are producing change at an ever-accelerating pace. Consider, for example, that in 1960, there were 439,000 unmarried households, couple households, in the United States. That was 30 years ago. Last year, there were 2,588,000 of them. Six times as many, nearly. In 1910, of the households across the United States, 81% were headed by a husband and a wife. 81%. In the next 40 years, until 1950, that dropped only 3%. 78% were still headed by a husband and a wife. But in the next 40 years, until 1990, that dropped to 55%. Times are producing change. And as we look into the future, we are told that in the next decade, between now and the year 2000, time is going to occur three times faster than it did in the last 30 years. We are told that by the year 2000, native-born Anglo-Saxons in the United States will experience a zero birth rate. The fastest-growing minority today come from the Asian Rim. Life expectancy in the year 2000 will be 90 on the average. Today, 85, excuse me, today the fastest growing age group in the United States is what age do you think? Those who are 85 years of age and older. That is the fastest growing age group in America. It used to be if you watched the Today Show, Willard Scott honored those who were 100 years of age. They hardly take note of those anymore. Now it's those who are 102 or 105 or 107 years of age. Currently, one-fourth of all the homes in America have computers. By the year 2000, that will double. By the year 2000, white Americans will be a minority in California. And get this, those of you who are baby boomers, in your lifetime, on the average, you will change jobs ten times. Some of you are well above average at this point already. But for the average baby boomer, there will be ten job changes, and not only that, there will be three vocational changes. 
entire different directions in vocation on the average. And we're told that half of all the knowledge we possess, half of it, we gained in the last 10 years. Think of that. The amount of what we know doubled from 1980 until 1990. But they estimate that what we know today is only 3% of what we will know by the year 2010. An explosion of knowledge which will produce an ever-accelerating rate of change. Now, change is very threatening to some people. Change may be good, change may be bad, but the fact is it's a reality that we must learn to live with if we haven't already. It is wonderful to know that the God that we worship is both eternal and changeless. He has neither beginning nor ending, and his perfections cannot change. That's incomprehensible to us. It's in the first place impossible for us to imagine eternity. But it's just as impossible to conceive of a living being who does not experience some sort of change. And why is that so inconceivable to us? It is because we are created in a universe whose basic design includes both time and change. Eternity and immutability, which is another word for changelessness, distinguish God from his creation. The truth of that is captured in the words of Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, written by Henry Francis Light in the last century. Mr. Light was well, well ahead of his times. We think that paraphrasing the Bible was something begun in the 1960s. Actually, he started it well over a hundred years ago when he paraphrased psalms for his congregation in Devonshire, England. And that hymn, which is in our hymnal entitled, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, is his paraphrase, a poetic paraphrase, of Psalm 103. There is a verse that is not in our hymnal, but which well captures this truth of our changeability and God's changelessness. It says, Frail as summer's flower we flourish. Blows the wind and it is gone. But while mortals rise and perish, God endures unchanging on. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the high, eternal one. The fact of God's eternity and his changelessness are linked together. They're inseparable truths. Think with me first this morning that God is unchangeable in his nature, in the very being of his person. There is no mutation with God. There is no evolution in the person of the biblical deity, this one and true God. There is none. Now, I need to point out that there is a radical theology that is being promoted by certain secular theologians, if you can believe that term, secular theologians, who accommodate their idea of God to the theory of evolution. 
they have produced what is called process theology. Maybe you've seen that term or heard about it. You certainly see the results of it, especially in mainline churches. Process theology is rooted in Hegelian philosophy. Its idea is that the universe is incomplete and always changing. Nothing can ever be perfect or final because, they say, reality is always moving, dynamic, and in process. The father of this idea of process theology is Alfred North Whitehead, a philosopher and mathematician. As he defines God, God is an impersonal force. Sometimes we're impressed with the fact that 90-some percent of Americans believe in God. The question is, which God? The God of the Bible or some God that's been created by people like this man, Whitehead? He says God is an impersonal force which controls evolution and changes with nature. God is not supreme, God is not sovereign, but he is a co-creator with man. Interesting thought. And he is working with man to shape the future. Now, this kind of theology gives birth to a lot of things, including the rewriting of moral codes. You see, if God is changing, then the standards that we have traditionally associated with God also change. And uh, this is being illustrated, for example, in the stir in the Presbyterian Church USA at the present time. If you read the paper this last week, you read something about that. It's being talked about in, in various places. Uh, there is a committee which has drawn up a new statement on morality which denies the authority of the Bible in its very first uh, point and says that we should search for a morality that is based upon love and justice. And the new morality they're, they're seeking to promote, which undoubtedly the Presbytery, uh, Presbyterian session uh, will reject if it gets that far this summer, but it will come back again. But the new morality they promote denies all of the boundaries of traditional morality. And I'm not going to go into detail because of time. But that kind of an idea about God, you see, that he changes, that he's sort of in control of evolution and he himself is evolving, whatever he is, that kind of an idea about God produces shifts in morality in contrast to such muddled ideas that are rooted in rationalism is the biblical revelation of the God that we worship. Listen to the words of A.W. Pink. He says, There never was a time when God was not. There never will come a time when he shall cease to be. God has neither evolved, grown, or improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3.6, is his own unqualified affirmation. He cannot change for the better, for he's already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. 
altogether unaffected by anything outside of himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. He alone can say, I am that I am. God is totally uninfluenced by time. God is also changeless in his attributes. As we've just read in Pink's statement, what he has been, he is now, and he always will be. God's attributes are all essential qualities of his very nature. Pink goes on to say, whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they are precisely the same now and will remain so forever. His power is unabated, his wisdom undiminished, his holiness unsullied. The attributes of God can no more change than deity can cease to be. His veracity is immutable, for his word is forever settled in heaven. His love is eternal, his mercy ceases not, for it is everlasting. So God is changeless in his very being, he is changeless in his attributes, and he is changeless in his purposes. Numbers 23:19 says God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will it not will he not make it good 1 Samuel 15:29 says the God of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind Once again I refer to Pink who says God's purpose never alters, one of two things causes a man to change his mind and reverse his plans, want of foresight to anticipate everything, or lack of power to execute them. But as God is both omniscient and omnipotent, there is never any need for him to revise his decrees. God never changes in his purposes. Ah, someone says, but what about the statements in the Old Testament in particular? For example, in Genesis chapter 6, where God says he repents of making man. Or in 1 Samuel 15, where he says he repents of naming Saul or as king of, of Israel. Or in Jonah, where God repents and does not bring judgment upon Nineveh in that generation. Doesn't that mean that God has changed his purposes? When the Bible says that God has repented, it does not mean precisely the same thing as when you and I repent. When the Bible says that God repents, it is an accommodation of language to try to help us understand what has taken place. More accurately, what has changed is God's dealings with humanity based upon the change in humanity but it is not a change in God's purpose. Lewis Berry Schaefer helps us by saying, God, though immutable or unchangeable, is not immobile. If he consistently pursues a righteous course, his attitude must be adapted to every moral change in man. Then he quotes Strong, who says, God's unchanging holiness requires him to treat the wicked differently from the righteous. When the righteous become wicked, his treatment of them must change. 
The sun is not fickle or partial because it melts the wax but hardens the clay. The change is not in the sun but in the objects that it shines upon. I think that's a good analogy. It is not that the sun changes but it is the difference of quality upon in what it shines upon. So when the Bible says God repents, it has not been a change in God's purposes, but it is a change in the way that he deals with man based upon the consistency of his purposes. What does this truth about God mean to us? How does it touch our everyday lives? If the God that we worship endures, as Hebrews 1 told us, If he is unchanging, as James 1 tells us. If it is true, as he himself says, I change not. Then how does that touch your life and mine? Well, I believe in the first place that it encourages our praying. For we do not pray to a God who is fickle. We pray to a God who is always consistent and forever dependable. We know from the Bible exactly how God views us, how he views the world, how he views sin, how he views the righteousness of Christ and the cross work of Christ. And he will never change in any of those views. So when you and I pray... We can be encouraged to know we come to the same God that David prayed to, that Moses prayed to, that the Lord Jesus addressed his Father, that Paul prayed to, that the saints through the ages have prayed to, and he is the same today as he always has been. He has not changed. Well, someone asks the question, and rightly so, well, if this is true... And if God's purposes do not change, then why should we pray? It's a good question. And there's a very simple answer to it. We should pray because God requires it of us. God tells us to pray. But you say, well, what good does it do? Well, it brings obedience in our lives for one thing. But remember this, that the same God who has purposed the end also purposes the means to the end. And frankly, prayer is part of his means to the ends that he's purposed. And how all of that works out, I cannot tell you. And I've never read anybody that could. I think it's inscrutable. But the fact is that God encourages us to pray. He tells us to pray. Because our praying is part of his process to the ends that he has already designed and fixed. This truth about God also <clears throat> establishes moral certainty. The relativism that is revealed in such statements as being put together by the committee I mentioned earlier in the Presbyterian Church is popular in our culture. It's popular because of the pluralism that has become the hallmark of late 20th century American idealism. Pluralism. 
which basically says that there are many truths and all truths are equally true. It is a lie. But that's what pluralism is all about. And that kind of an ideation produces change and relativism in moral standards. But the commandments of the unchanging God do not change. The Ten Commandments have not become the Ten Suggestions. They are still God's commandments. Now it's true that there is a gray zone where God has not spoken with finality and clarity on some disputable things. The New Testament addresses those, laying down principles as to how we are to respond within the context of our culture in those areas. But remember that there are principles of right and wrong embodied in the word of the unchanging God, and they are forever the same. They must be because they are a true measure in terms of human morality of God's standard for righteousness. The truth of God's unchangeableness encourages us to pray. It establishes moral certainty. It also ensures perfect justice. Perfect justice. What I'm about to say is a warning to those who are living in sin. God's wrath upon sin has not subsided except at the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God upon sin, though he may withhold it for a time, will still come. God has not grown accustomed to human sin. It is as offensive to him today as it was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned. And God's wrath is still coming and will come certainly upon all human sin. Thank God for the cross, however, where that wrath has already fallen upon a substitute for those who will go to the cross and bow the knee and recognize that great work of God in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. For those who will not do that, there is but one destiny, and that is eternal punishment because they have ignored the only provision that the eternal God has made for sinful people to be right with himself. The unchangeableness of God ensures perfect justice. And it also underscores the promises of God. God's promises are constant. They are trustworthy. To Titus, Paul said, he is the God who cannot lie, and he promised. To Timothy, he said, God cannot deny himself. God makes a promise, he must and will keep it, because he is unchangeable. That is why we are committed to that system of theology that says God is still going to fulfill his promises to Abraham. In the Abrahamic covenant. Because God made certain promises to the Jewish people. 
And one day he is going to fulfill those promises without fail. I'm grateful to know that John 3.16 is an unchangeable promise. That it is dependable that whoever will believe in the Son of God whom he has given in his love will not perish but have everlasting life. That is a promise and it's forever true. Let me say finally that the unchangeableness of God also, if you stop and think about it, entices us toward heaven. Do you ever get weary with change? Do you get tired of the pace of it in the world, not to speak of your world? The unchangeableness of God that there is a sure resting place entices us toward heaven. In the midst of change, we rest in a God who provides security and reliability. And we long for deliverance from the kind of change that we experience in this world. Decay, degeneration, separations, death. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21 and notice that none of these kinds of changes will be a part of heaven. Revelation 21, God says in verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, which includes change and time, have passed away. He who sits upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Look in verse 23. The description here of the heavenly city. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. Those are basic elements of change, aren't they? Light and darkness. In our world, we live with them every 24 hours. No need for these any longer, for the glory of God has illumined it, the city, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nation shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, now notice that, isn't that interesting thought? In the daytime, there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street uh, and on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Well, that's an interesting term, isn't it? For heaven, every month. 
And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservant shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their, on their, their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night. And so we have terms that are used here that we relate to in our change in time universe, but which describe something that happens beyond the veil of time and change. Have you ever thought about heaven, about eternity to come? Does that mean that there is no time there? Or does that mean that there is endless time there? Or does it mean that heaven is the eternal present? Those are three different positions. Good people take different positions there. But the fact is, though we think of heaven as being without time, there is some kind of process that takes place. It mentions here months, for example, and seasons of fruit from the trees. Whatever the mystery of all of that, the truth that we shall be in a perfect place where there is not the kind of change and sorrow and separation and death that we experience in this world, it entices us on, doesn't it? It is normal to experience anxiety around changes in life. Some of you are experiencing that. Some of you are newly single again. Others of you are couples who've recently emptied the nest. Some are about to be engaged or married. That brings big change. Some are about to graduate from school. Some are beginning a new job this week. Others are moving to a different city. We live in a society that changes more than some of us at least can accommodate to our personal convictions. It is not easy to live in a world that changes. It produces anxiety. How do you handle anxiety about change? Let me just drop in two or three suggestions. One idea is to share your feelings of anxiety with intimate friends who can understand what you're facing and pray with you. And then secondly, think about what you're anxious about. Someone has said, don't tell me it doesn't do any good to worry because the things I worry about never happen. There's a short circuit there somewhere. But think about those things that you worry about and imagine the worst case scenario and what you would do, would it really be that bad? But most importantly, commit your way to the eternal God, the unchanging one, and trust in him to guide you and strengthen you through this world of change. 
I mentioned earlier Henry Francis Light, who wrote the poem, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. He was a man who experienced change in his world about a century and a half ago. He grew up wanting to become a physician, but ended up being a clergyman. That was a change, quite a change. For 25 years of his life, he ministered to humble fishermen and sailors in Lower Brixham in Devonshire, England. In the latter years of his life, he fought tuberculosis, which had no cure in those days. And he saw a change in his body and his activity, his lifestyle, because of the deterioration that took place. It grew worse until finally a doctor told him that he had to spend the winter of 1847 in a warmer climate and suggested that he go to Italy. And so on September 4th of that year, he preached his last message to his little congregation there in Devonshire and administered communion to them one more time as they sorrowed together over his leaving. That afternoon, he walked alone along the seashore and watched the sunset. And as it did, it reflected its golden rays in the blue waters. And he was impressed to write another poem based upon that. And so he returned to his home. And in the space of 60 minutes or so, he hammered out the words of a poem on the anvil of his own life experience. It's meaningful as you realize that he left Devonshire and headed toward Italy, but before he got there, he died and went to be with the Lord. That poem is found in our hymnals. And I'd like you to turn there with me as we sing a couple of verses of it. It's 478. In light of what you've learned about Henry Light, I'd like you to notice the words carefully. And notice also that his faith was resting not in his changing circumstances, but in a God who changes not. Would you stand with me as we sing verses 1 and 2 of 478? 